You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Find the show on Twitter at Talk of Fame Net. Here are your hosts, Rick Goslin, Ron Borges, and Clark Judd. Well, the time's not really today, but uh, it's this weekend we turn the clocks back. We turn back one hour from Daylight Savings to Standard Time on Saturday night, so we gain... You know, an hour Sunday morning. Of course, on this show, we're always turning the clock back. It doesn't matter what time of year it is. And today, we're going to go back to Ron's days of covering the greatness of the Oakland Raiders. You got it right. <laughs> with former tight end Raymond Chester, named last week to the 2018 Class of the Black College Football Hall of Fame. Good man. I remember him as uh, one of the strongest and fittest guys I've ever seen. It was unbelievable. He was I mean, a great he, pass catcher, too. Was tr- tremendous. And he was the embodiment of what Al believed in, Al Davis, uh, which was that you know top draft picks have more in them. And uh, they're sometimes allowed to show. You know, they had traded him to Baltimore, and then he traded uh, Mike Ciani to get him back a couple years later. And at the time, uh, the Raiders were loaded at tight end and... Geniuses like myself were wondering what the Al's lost his mind. What doing? He'd only caught 55 passes in the previous two seasons. So he comes right. to the Raiders first year, he catches 13 passes. I go, oh, Al, you know what the hell you're doing. Next year, he catches 55 passes, uh, uh, you know, scored eight touchdowns. And, uh, and, and Al was looking me up to uh, talk to me about some stories I had written. <laughs> what the hell was he doing with Raymond Chester? Taking you to the woodshed. Exactly. Hey, uh, we're also going to sit down with someone you know well, Goose, and that's former defensive Neil Smith, who's one of the 108 preliminary candidates for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Now, Neil hasn't been on that list, not, of course, until we spoke to him last year. And now, well, now he is, and he's here today to talk about it. Yeah, how does an all-decade pass rusher with two Super Bowl rings and 100 career sacks fall through the cracks? Maybe question. Neil has the answer for us. Yeah, well, that's not all. We also I blame have... you, Goose. I <laughs> <laughs> hope he does have the answer. Everybody we, else does. We, we also have former Super Bowl coach Jim Fossil to dissect today's quarterbacks and former Patriots GM Upton Bell to discuss a new book that's out on the shelves. It's called Present at the Creation, My Life in the NFL and the Rise of America's Game, written by, well, Upton Bell and... Our Ron Borges. Hey, bud. Yay. And Dr. Data. Yeah, Dr. Data's back in the house. Yes, uh, he is. This time to talk about why Tennessee, the Rams, and Jacksonville, Jacksonville, really, Goose, may have a legitimate shot at the Super Bowl. Well, that's a lot to get to, and we will get to it right after this. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Hey, Ron, uh, you cover the Patriots. Like a blanket. Yes, sir. And you cover the Patriots quarterback, Tom Brady. Like two blankets. (laughs) Like two blankets. So how soon before he gives you the keys to one of those Tom Brady signature edition Aston Martin Vanquish S. Volantes. <laughs> did you did you see that story? I did. Yeah, I did. We had, they were all over that at the Herald. They love that kind of stuff. Yeah, I bet they do. Well, to uh, to give uh, an idea to people who don't read the Herald, I can't imagine that that would be. But uh, Aston Martin is producing twelve Tom Brady signature edition models. With Tom signing off on the deal in May, and the car costing something like um, three hundred thousand dollars. Tom Brady can afford that, and so can his wife. But uh, Ron. 
Not too many sports writers can. No, that's true. I'm assuming he's going to cop me on one like he did with a pair of Uggs. <laughs> uh, might not be quite the same. But uh, but what I was wondering, though, and since Tom's your boy, uh, you might have the answer for this. I thought he and Giselle were big Save the Rain fans. Yeah, so did I. Uh, uh, I don't think that Aston Martin is his version of the Prius. Yeah, look. Killing some forest with that uh, cookbook, too, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly right. He's hoping hey, to. I think those Uggs, by the way, uh, Ron, that's what he, uh, when he read one of your stories, he went, oh, <laughs> when he sees me coming. Oh. That's right, when he sees you coming. Hey, Gooseman, there a market for those Brady Dish and Aston Markets and uh, Aston Martins in Dallas? The only Aston here but Don here is Aston, Texas. <laughs> oh, I thought you could tell me Jennifer Aston. <laughs> hey, uh, well, the Patriots and Tom Brady are on a bye this week. But that doesn't mean nothing's going on in New England. Uh, in fact, the Patriots just pulled off a major deal, as most of you know, with Jimmy Garoppolo going to San Francisco. And, Ron, um, no, you were all over it. It sounds it as if, A, Patriots couldn't afford to keep him. B, they believe Brady won't retire until you do. <laughs> or C, both. Which is it? Uh, I think probably both are a little bit true, you know, all of the above. Uh, but I think the former was more important than the latter, really. Belichick, I think, realized that uh, Grapple's greatest value to him was now, uh, while he still had total control over him. Uh, if he gets to the offseason and becomes a free agent and you franchise him at a $25 million hit and mm-hmm. you're running the risk, as the Redskins found out, of being stuck with that, and then what do you do? And and you got to give Brady a huge raise because it's about double what he's making. So yeah. uh, it, it's problems all the way. And, it, and I also thought that it uh, would greatly limit his trade. I thought getting a second-round pick was uh, about as good as they could hope for. Plus, until you trade him, that's going to count against your salary cap, and I think that would hurt them as well. It sure. apparently hurt no their question. offseason moves. Um, you know what, guys? Apparently, Brown's coaching staff is livid uh, because it targeted Garoppolo and believes the front office fell asleep on the deal. Let me ask you something. Is anyone surprised Brown's <laughs> falling asleep? Goose? No. This is the, this is a train wreck. Oh, jeez. Well, wait, Goose Man, I want to ask you because um, so much attention was paid to that move. But the Dwayne Brown trade to Seattle, I think that was significant, too, because the Seahawks found the missing piece to their offense, namely a quality left tackle. But you combine that with Garoppolo going to the 49ers and Jay Ajayi going to Philadelphia and Kelvin Benjamin to Buffalo. What in the name of trader Jack McKeon is going on in the NFL? I mean, the trade trade deadline used to be like, well, Ron's like as quiet as a Brown Super Bowl party. Right. But now, I mean, now it's more like Major League Baseball with big names switching teams. Yeah, what we're seeing is an urgency at the trade deadline that we've never seen before. And yeah. what the GMs and coaches see is what you, me, and Ron are all seeing. There isn't a dominant team out there. The best teams today all have flaws, and this is a season to steal a Lombardi trophy. Forget about the Niners. Trading for Garoppolo was a new by desperate team. But Brown of the Seahawks makes Seattle a better team. Ajaya to the Eagles makes Philadelphia a better team. Sam Benjamin to the Bills. I like all those moves. No, I agree. And I think with salaries as high as they are and the tag now costing so much, uh, it's just not that easy to re-sign your guys as it once was, as the Redskins certainly found out last offseason. You know, they, they... you know, cousins, Kirk Cousins, he bet the farm on himself uh, by not signing an extension, and I think he, you know, he's going to end up getting paid for that. And I think, like Goose said, uh, you know, these are already strengthening all these moves are strengthening teams that are already good, and the weak teams, uh, look, they were going to be weak whether they kept these guys or not. So, yeah. um, but uh, I think what it does for New England remains to be seen. But I will tell you this, guys: if Tom Brady goes down and somebody like Brian Hoyer is in charge of things. <laughs> 
Timber. Adios, muchacho. Yeah. Well, you know what? I said it's a bye week for the Patriots, and it is. But obviously, it's not a bye week for the NFL. And Gooseman, your Cowboys, they suffered a major setback this week, and it wasn't on the field. Well, barring any further appeals, the Cowboys will now be without their best player for the next six weeks. Ezekiel Elliott single-handedly resurrected this team's playoff contender with three consecutive 100-yard rush games the last three games to get them back to 4-3. and three. But, ouch, look at that schedule. Their ouch. next three games are Oof. against Kansas City, Atlanta, and Philadelphia. Ouch. This is a different team without Ezekiel Elliott a beatable team. Yeah, well, uh, it's really no surprise here because we've been down this road before, Goose, but the Cowboys say they think he's not done anything that merits a suspension, and the NFLPA says it's going to file and has filed a, a for a stay of the suspension, and, and that's great. I mean, that's great, except the Patriots, as Ron knows, didn't think Brady did anything wrong either, and you know what? It didn't matter. I mean, right. It didn't matter. I mean, as long as the commissioner believes you're guilty, you're toast. And this is, to me, it's all about a process the players signed off on with the latest CBA. So, um, unfortunately, don't tell me it's unfair to have Roger Goodell as judge during execution because you agreed to it. Clark, yeah. you, you understand the process very well. So why the weekly whining about Brady? Are you now <laughs> Because he did the, are, nothing are, wrong. That's what the Cowboys Neither did. Zeke. Are you According going to, to pick them. Up the Elliott flag now? <laughs> no, 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 no. Completely different story. He's not in the uh, 617 <laughs> area code. He's, he's not, not in the 617. He's not he's a not five-time Brady. Super Bowl <laughs> champion. Definitely not Tom Brady. Oh, boy. You know, uh, look, yeah, I mean, you, you read what you sell uh, in life. And most of the time, uh, and the players, you know, they always took the short term money over longer term matters like this. And I know that most of the members on the executive, I mean, this has been signed off 10 or 11 times in the history of these CBAs. Uh, most of the players, nearly all, I would say all the players on the executive committee at various times all believe the same thing, which was it's fine to have the commission have that power because it's not going to affect me. It's only going to affect the, the, the small percentage of of bad actors and, and criminals. And that may be true, uh, but now that, that power has been codified in federal court. Wow. And to get it, you like that word? Codified. <laughs> I went to college, yeah, too. Yeah. Well, hey, no, I, I went to I, college. I, I'm going to codify this segment because I'm going to stop you right there, Ron, because we're going to... Seems as if this segment is brought to you by the New England Patriots. I mean, we started talking about the Tom Brady signature edition car in our first or earlier in this uh, segment. So it's only appropriate that we end it by talking about a Willie McGinnis signature edition bust. A Ron Borges push for him for the Hall of Fame this week on our website, talkoffamenetwork.com. And Ron, you're here to push him for Ken, so get started. Well, you know, few rose uh, to the moment more emphatically than uh, preliminary Hall of Fame nominee Willie McGinnis, and none sacked the quarterback more often when it counted the most. Uh, McGinnis anchored two generations of Patriots Super Bowl defenses, first for Bill Parcells and Super Bowl uh, 31 team that lost to the Packers uh, after a Cinderella season, and then for the first three of Bill Belichick's seven Super Bowl teams, uh, all of which uh, the the three Willie was on, won the Lombardi Trophy, and they won in snow, no small measure because of what Willie did for them on defense. In Super Bowl uh, 36, he was asked to forego rushing the passer uh, much of the game to haunt every step by uh, Marshall Falk. Falk ended up netting 76 yards rushing, did nothing significant in the passing game, and failed to score. Patriots win by a field goal. In Super Bowl 39, he was asked to move from his normal outside linebacker position, put his hand on the ground, play defensive end, and spend his day spying Donovan McNabb to keep him from making the kind of big plays on the move that he got the Eagles into the Super Bowl. McNabb gained one yard rushing, and by game's end was concussed and exhausted. Patriots win by a field goal. 
that sort of defensive versatility was a hallmark of McGinnis' years in New England, uh, but it did not prevent him from registering a sack in each of his first three Super Bowl appearances or from setting the playoff record with 16 career sacks, surpassing the previous high of 14 by Bruce Smith. His four-and-a-half sacks against the Jaguars in the 17th of his 18 career playoff games is also a singles-game uh, playoff record. Yet despite all that, people think he's a long shot. Why? Because he doesn't have individual stats. And uh, William McGinnis will tell you, he never dreamed of being in the Hall of Fame, but he'd love to be there. He dreamed of winning Super Bowls, and that's every player. Until it comes Hall of Fame time, then it's all about them. But it was never about Willie. So, Ron, how, how, do you over, how do you overcome the lack of stats? You almost have to pitch him as yeah. an offensive lineman, don't you? Well, yeah, you do. I think it's pretty tough. You know, you have to really get people to endorse uh, the way he played and the various, various positions he played. He was in coverage 35% of the time during his career. A 270-pound, 6-foot-5-inch linebacker defensive end. And I, I think that's the way to do it. It's going to be a tough sell. Well, that's going to do it, guys. Listen, I've got to take a test drive in one of those Brady Aston Martins. But in the meantime, yeah, we're going to commercial. When we return, we'll sit down with Jim Fossil. This is the Talk of Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Well, we promise you, Jim Fossil, that we former Super Bowl coach, father of Rams special teams coach extraordinaire, John Fossil, and our resident quarterback expert. And we never break a promise. In fact, he's here with us now. Hey, Jim. Great to have you back for another season. It's always good to talk to you guys. You guys are very knowledgeable about the game of football. Well, thanks. <laughs> we are so far. But before we get started, uh, I want to ask you about the news of the week, and, and that's the Jimmy Garoppolo trade. Um, you're a guy who knows quarterbacks well, um, and this guy is a young quarterback who really hasn't played a whole lot. Did the 49ers overpay by sending a, a second-rounder for a quarterback with just two pro starts? I mean, of what you know of Garoppolo, is this a gamble, or, or could it be, you know, like Brett Favre part two? Well, I think they've looked into it pretty sharp. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, if you don't have a quarterback, you got to get one. That's the building block of the whole thing. Now, my question would be, all right, he's been with the New England Patriots. That's one of the best teams, maybe the best team year in and year out. So now you got to figure, all right, is it the team or is it him? Quarterbacks are hard to get. They are hard to get. Uh, you really need to astute guy how to evaluate him. And uh, I like the guy. I really do. Um, I'm a little concerned when you take a quarterback, a backup quarterback, because generally what happens is a backup quarterback comes in and a mature team, which New England Patriots are, they know they got to pick it up to make him look good. Now, He's not going to have the same offensive strategies and players and all that stuff at the 49ers. You know, but you got to take a chance. I mean, quarterbacks are hard to get. Jim, Jared Goff and Carson Wentz went 1-2 in the 2016 NFL Draft, and both of them have made a quantum leap this season in their second years. Why is that? Well, I think, you know... The first year is tough. I mean, it really is. Uh, I remember when I got drafted, I, you know, I, when the game is fast. And, uh, you know, I think in golf position, that team was not united. And, you know, my son's there and all that. I'd watch the games, and the guy would throw a five-step right now out, and then he would get hit right in the face the same time. Well, for a rookie, that is really, really hard. I mean – 
you know, and, and the way he's playing this year um, is dramatically different. And the Rams are they they were I think number one scoring team, and I think right now they're number two, and it has a lot to do with him. And there can be a big you're going to know about a quarterback, in my opinion. You're going to need a lot about your future quarterback in his second and third year. And I think that uh, I really like Goff. I really, really do. And uh, and who was the other one you asked me about? Carson Wentz. Carson Wentz. Yeah, I tell you, those two guys right there, I'd love to coach them. And, uh, you know, Wentz shows me a lot of uh, savvy. Uh, he shows me a lot of good decision-making. You know, he's just not throwing it down the pike to get rid of the ball. He, he seems to have a great uh, handle on their offense and what he's, expect, what he's expected to do, uh, not just go back. and He doesn't look rattled. He feels very comfortable in that system. I want to go back a little bit for Asha, another Garoppolo-related question. Uh, Jim, you've been in his position as a head coach, have to make these kinds of decisions. The thing that struck me about this move is he was traded by a, a team with a pretty smart coach who's got a 40-year-old and counting quarterback. And it just seems to me that if you're going to make that move, it's only because you don't believe in Garoppolo, at least to the extent that the 49ers do. I mean, that's just the way it feels to me. Am I crazy on that? or? No, you're not crazy. That's that, that's legit, legitimate. But the other thing that hit me first was that uh, they say Brady's going to play another three or four years. Right. <laughs> and yeah. we can't figure that one out. It's his age. <laughs> but I right. think they know it real well. The guy might play three or four more years, and they can say, we can pick up a, a younger guy next year. We'll be smart. We'll, we'll get a good young quarterback, and uh, he'll have uh, three years behind him when he has to start. Mm-hmm. And that's what hit me, mm-hmm. that they're saying I, we can get the same guy and plug him in and let him learn from Brady, and then he'll, he will be the next Tom Brady quarterback there. Uh-huh. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, it's interesting because Garoppolo's 26, you know, which most people don't realize. I mean, he's not a kid. Right. Uh, and, and it just was I – I was not shocked that they made the move except for this thing. And imagine this if you were the head coach of the team. They now have one quarterback, Tom Brady. <laughs> they don't even have a guy in the practice squad, so I'm going to go throw some balls around there tomorrow, Jim. If you're going to have one, that's a good one to have, Ron. <laughs> I know, but this is incredible. Oh, that's right. That's right. But, but you know, I know Bill well. Uh, I've known him for years. He's, he's offered me a job to come with him. He, he is a calculator, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, when you go back to the same thing, you know, the, the number one predictor on winning and losing Forget about quarterback ratings and all that. It's turnover ratio. Mm-hmm. And they're plus four. So they're good. They're not great. They're good. Mm-hmm. And I think that, uh, you know, he's taken a big gamble by getting rid of him right now. But I don't know who the third guy is there. But uh, I, I will say this. We used to work against each other in, uh, in the uh, preseason mm-hmm. practice. And I remember seeing this guy, Tom Brady. And uh, Drew Bledsoe was the quarterback. Yeah. And I was watching their quarterback. So that, that guy didn't look too bad. You know, see, and you know what? Drew Bledsoe went down. And in his second year, he was a backup. Tom Brady 
took the New England Patriots to the Super Bowl and won it. Right. So you can't rule anything out. And and the best thing that Tom does is he utilizes his team strengths and tries to stay away from their weaknesses. And uh, so, you know, uh, I, I'm betting on him. Belichick, I think. I just saw him. I met Bill Belichick. Yeah. So, but uh, he, he's got it in his back pocket. I don't know who the third guy is. I can't tell you. I don't know if you guys know who it is. But I think that's Ron. Tom, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tom Brady went in there. Tom Brady went in there as a low draft pick with second year, and he took him to the Super Bowl and won. So I think he thinks he might do it again. Yeah. Hey, Jim, quick question for you. We're speaking with former coach Jim Fossil on the Talk of Fame Network, and you can find us on the web at talkoffamenetwork.com or on Twitter at, at Talk of Fame Net. And, Jim, we've got about a minute left. But um, I want to go back to the Rams where your son coaches. As you mentioned, Jared Goff uh-huh. has improved. Todd Gurley has improved. You know, that whole operation has improved. Who gets the credit? <laughs> well, you got to give it to the head coach. Uh, but I, I, I'll tell you this. In my opinion, he's young and, and not a lot of background. But in my opinion, he has the best defensive coordinator and the best special teams coordinator mm-hmm. in the league. Mm-hmm. Okay? And, uh, you know, the, their special teams was amazing. Right. You know, that one game, uh, the head coach gave John a lot of credit, said John Possible and their special teams won it. Right. You know, they had two punt returns they made for touchdowns. You know, they went, uh, they punted the ball down to the two-yard line, and they kicked two field goals. That was their points. But Wade Phillips, who I know, is a great one. But I think the key to this whole thing is that he's created an atmosphere where the players are having a lot of fun. Because I know that about Wade, and I know that about my son John, and I, what I see, the head coach is the same thing. He makes it fun for the football players. It doesn't hurt any quarterback to have a great running back, though. And they appear to have that in time no. early. Oh, no, 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 no. And he was getting frustrated, you know, last year yeah. that, uh, you know, they couldn't get any yardage on the ground and, and things. And, and that, that was a divided team last year, offense and defense. That was a divided team. Today, I look at that team and they're having fun and they're patting each other on the back. And they've got the parts. You know, Goff, I think, is going to be an outstanding quarterback. And then they've got good coaches in each position. And that team, what I see of that team, is they're having fun right now, and they're playing together. Where last year, it looked like the offense and the defense and the special teams, they all they were those separate units. Hey, Jim, is it too soon to say the Rams have found their quarterback for the next five to ten years? I mean, I like what Goff's doing, too, but is it too soon to say what they've got there? No, I think uh, I think he's the guy. And I remember one time doing a, a, I announced a game up in Green Bay, and uh, – you know, I was talking to different quarterbacks and stuff like that. But I think quarterbacks have to be patient. Okay, but I think what I've seen of Goff this year, last year he didn't have a chance. I mean, he'd go back five steps, throw the ball, and he'd get his helmet knocked off. <laughs> this year he's getting some protection. He's got a run game, and the turnover ratio is good. The defense is doing good. The special teams are doing good. And any quarterback, I don't care who you're talking about, Tom Brady can't win it by himself. And we go back to when I talked when when he was the second year and they won the Super Bowl. They won it because they had a great defense, special team played good, and they won the turnover ratio. It wasn't just Tom Brady. But now Goff has a good support in cast. Well, you know, it, it, it's interesting because uh, our old pal uh, Dave McGinnis always, just, always tells us when he comes on the show uh, with that West Texas uh, twang, 
you ain't got a quarterback, you just playing rugby. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it seems to be truer now than ever in the NFL that you can't win anymore like the Bears did with Billy Wade in whatever it was, 1963. If you don't have the quarterback, you don't have a chance to win. Well, he's true, and Dave McGinnis is a good friend of mine. I, I coached with him at Arizona. But the thing is, you can take – well, let's just say this. We got Kerry Collins. He got cut by Carolina. He got cut by New Orleans. He was out of the league. Nobody wanted him. I brought him in, talked to him, how to be a leader. Okay? How to be a leader. Don't make excuses. Let me be your guard, if you will. The guy took us to the Super Bowl. All right. Jim Fossil. Thanks for the time. Good catch. All right, guys. Always good to talk to you. Thanks. Talk to you. Thanks, Jim. That was former coach Jim Fossil. Up next is former defensive end Neil Smith, one of the 108 preliminary candidates for the Hall of Fame's class of 2018. You're listening to the Talk Fame Network. listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Our next guest, Neil Smith, is a member of the NFL's 100 Sack Club. He wears two Super Bowl rings, not only as a past league sack champion, but a member of the NFL's all-decade team for the 1990s. But what he isn't, with that resume, it makes no sense, is someone that can get to the front door of Canton. I mean, this is his 13th year of eligibility for the Hall of Fame, but Neil has never, ever been a semifinalist much less a finalist. Now, that's the bad news. The good, at least he's on the preliminary list of candidates for the class of 2018, a list he didn't even make in 2017. So he's in the mix now, and he's here to visit us for a second time. Hey, Neil, nice to have you on again. Oh, it's so good hearing from you guys again. And uh, I want to just first say that I appreciate everything that you guys do. Uh, I'm sure you guys, uh, I would never been this far without you guys because you guys have brought me on over a year ago and now you give me an opportunity to uh, come back on your show and to uh, you know just to bring awareness and I really appreciate it. Now were you beginning to feel forgotten by the Hall of Fame selection process and were you surprised when your name finally turned up on the preliminary list for the class 2018? Well yeah to the first part of that question absolutely I uh, I really felt like um, you know it's just like the NFL, you know, sometimes you're out of sight, out of mind, and there's a lot of players that's out there that, you know, such as myself, that's, you know, once, you, once you're once you done with the league, if you're not in front of that, you know, that television and, and, and doing sports or perhaps on radio, then that's the kind of things that happen to you. And I'm and I for sure, you know, um, I'm feeling really well about this. Do you think uh, playing all those years in small market city like Kansas City maybe hurt your candidacy and do you think if you had played like in new york or la or chicago uh you might already have a bust in canton well you know there's, there's been a lot of um you know a lot of players over the current year past years that you know kansas city has had that, that actually got in and, and you know some and they have a number of guys that have been in but you know i just don't know my my situation as far as i'm um, having an opportunity to uh you know uh to get to this point in my my in my life and and not get in but yet you know I have the full respect that, you know, it's, it's a process, and I understand that, you know, uh, you know, the numbers speak for itself, and, you know, two Super Bowls doesn't help. I mean, you know, it, it counts, too. And, you know, uh, I just think that um, um, the, the, the real deal is that, you know, you're still sitting here, you just don't know, and just hopefully one day you would love to know if you're really going to get in or you're not. 
We're speaking with Hall of Fame candidate Neil Smith on the Talk of Fame Network, and you can find us on the web at talkoffamenetwork.com or on Twitter at, at talkoffamenet. And, Neil, since you mentioned the process, um, it isn't often the two of anything from one team get enshrined in the Hall of Fame, whether it's a wide receiver or a cornerback or an offensive tackle. Do you think playing in the shadows of, of Derek Thomas hurt your candidacy? I mean, that, that voters might be or would be reluctant to elect two pass rushers from the same team? Well, you know, I think we're the, we're the two of the greatest duels that ever do it. You know, um, our numbers speak for itself. I know when I left from Kansas City and went over to Denver, I had over 80-something sacks. And Derek, he had 100 of them. And, you know, of course, I did get into that 100 club years later. But um, I don't think that. I think me and Derek was, was made for each other. We feed up each other. And I guarantee you, you know, any team right now, the way they're throwing the football, which they did have two pass rushes, such as ourselves, you know, <laughs> to, to uh, the one-two points to, to have on their team. And, um with the throwing league that they have right now. So I, I, I'm i willing to suspect that, you know, we both fed off each other and we were just good for, you know, the time that we was in. And I, I can I, I would love to see how we will be able to wreck this time now that they're throwing a ball on first down and every down in, in the game. Neil, you, you, no consolation, but you aren't alone. Leslie O'Neill, Simeon Rice, Clyde Simmons, and Pat Swilling are all right there with you in the 100 sack club from your era and not a one can get a whiff of can. What do you think voters have against pass rushers, or is it defensive players in general? Well, you know, I, I'm gonna be honest with you. I really don't know. They have some great players and names that you that you know. You know, my my main objective was that I, I I wanted to make myself a complete player. I never had no weakness as far as as far as playing football. You know, I was a run defender before I was a pass rusher. I learned. You know how to rush the pass as I went along, you know, in, into the game. But I was a dominant, you know, a run stopper coming from the Big Eight at the one time, and then you know not how to, you know, play the strong side and and, and plays come to me, you know, take care of it and plays away, chase them down. And then when the pass runs came, you know, I had to had the third, you know, had to never leave the field and and, and then go into hunt and you know try to get sacks. So, you know, a complete player is is really what you you're looking for. And I had everything that a complete player needed. You know, as far as trying to get in, and you know, I uh, the good thing about it is that you know, fellas, I can sit here and I can I can try to pinpoint each position. But the number one objective is that you know what? Do I have any regrets? No, because I left it all out there. You know, every you know, I have no regrets how my career unfolded and how you know how it ended because you know I became that world champion. A lot of those guys you met, I mean, that you mentioned. You know, they haven't even, you know, most of them have went to the playoff, but none of them never had a chance to go even play in the big dance. That long win, too, and I, and, I, and I get the feel of that pain for them. But then also, you know, uh, what is this, you know, what is the different makers made? You know, those, those guys, uh, I'm sure, you know, over the years that they played, you have to account for those guys, and that's what you have to do. You have to account for players such as myself, you know, along with Derek, and I'm sure he's prepared for me just as much as they did for Derek. Well, you know, you mentioned the, those Super Bowls, of course. The Broncos were, I believe, 11-point underdogs in that first Super Bowl against uh, the Packers. I'm just wondering, uh, uh, Neil, during that week, how did Mike Shanahan convince uh, your team that they were the better team, even though everybody in the world was saying you had no chance? Yeah, I mean, that's just, you know, that's just the underdog. You, you, you want that situation where, you know, somebody thinks that you just, you know, you're not, you're not worthy of it, but yet you can go to Kansas City and win. You can go win on the road in Pittsburgh. And you could then take it on the road and, and, you know, and play in the Super Bowl and win that one too. So I'm just saying that, you know, it, it was a great, it was a great setup. Um, you know, and it's not, 
taking nothing off from Green Bay. Green Bay, the year before, they had won a championship, and, and they felt like, you know, they should be back there again, and it was going to be an easy victory. Well, they haven't played a team like that. You know, we, they, we, was very, we were very small, but we was a very fast team, and we had a great defense. And not only that, we had so many weapons on offense that we can, we, if we had to match up for then we can actually – you know, match up with you in the Super Bowl 32 and then beat you like we did in Green Bay. They didn't sound estimate us. Mike got us prepared, put us in the right situation, and we could we could have played that, that game any day. We would have beat them. We would have beat them three out of four times. Oh, wow. Well, Neil, we, we debate this all the time on the show, and since we're talking about the, the Broncos and we've been talking about the Chiefs, I can't think of anyone better to answer this question. Who has the better home field advantage in the AFC West? Would it be the Chiefs with Arrowhead or the Broncos with Mile High Stadium? Oh, my God. i tell you what, those are the two worst ones to play in. And then you might want to throw the black hole into that, too. They <laughs> That's right. In, in Oakland, man. But i tell you what, uh, I'm going to have to get the edge. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to have to get the edge for, as far as crowd noise to Kansas City. But then I'm going to give the fourth quarter comeback to Denver because the altitude is the difference there. Yep. And if you don't have no gas in the tank, you know, the Russians try to get to down that way later in the game and, and have him to sit back and he'll eat you up. But so they just I, I couldn't even ask for no more. But I'm gonna give the number one nod to Kansas City because they you know it's much louder. It was louder but then and then the fans are much closer, you know, to the field than it is Denver, you know, being that, you know, they're, they're so high up in altitude and um, it just you know it's just a step below. Denver fans are just tougher though, man, because you know if you don't perform, they will boo you. NC <laughs> fans, they won't boo you. They just cheer with you the whole time until they just to the game is over. You said gas in the tank in Denver. Is it more like oxygen in the tank in the fourth quarter? <laughs> yeah, most like, more like more like um, more like oxygen, yeah, because you know the moment you run the ball back there, man, you're gonna grab you're gonna grab some air for sure. <laughs> yeah. Neil, I've always said that Arrowhead is as close. The NFL is going to come to a college atmosphere. You played in a terrific college atmosphere at Nebraska. Can you compare the mm-hmm. crowds in Lincoln with those in Kansas City? No, totally different. You know, college college crowds are just more or less, you know, college inbound. But then you yeah, you got you know you have a lot of you know Nebraska fans that's that's old alumni and stuff there. Uh, and and what they would say, all the money that that keeps that program going. But yet, yeah, I tell you what, um, you know, you look at you look at uh, college football different so much than, than the NFL. The NFL fans are really, really, you know, they they just diehard fans. They just they they was born and raised there, and that's just the team. And they just they do any and everything. You know how college players do. They, I mean, college you know players come and go, but then you know the pros. You know, once you get a superstar, he might be there, you know, for for ten or more years, and 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 they know what they're gonna get as far as the product. So that's a big big difference between you know as far as the crowd noise and. And, you know, the, but the hats off to, you know, it's more louder in the pros than it is in college. Now, th- does it pain you to see what's going on in Nebraska right now? I mean, this is a far cry from Oh, it's very Oakland. painful. Yeah, it's very, very painful. I mean, you know, knowing from what I came from and to where we stand at now, we can't, we can't even put, you know, the right product on the field to, you know, to, to, to get these kids in there to, you know, uh, I never thought it would ever take this long if we ever went down, but. It, it, it's kind of, kind of, unreal that it, it, it's so hard to swallow. 
and then it's so hard to digest, you know, once you get down that, you know, you see the program that you came from and what we stood for so long that, you know, it's taking this long to get back. So they got a lot of work to do, man. They have to get this thing back in gear. And, you know, I just hope and pray that, you know, um, that they do uh, pretty soon because we, we cannot compete at the, at, the, at the talent that we are now. I'm not a big uh, celebration guy, as as my two pals here on the show will tell you, Neil. Uh, mm-hmm. Unless I'm celebrating myself, of course. Uh, but but you had a trademark baseball swing when you I like said, that. "Yeah, like there you that. go. Why not? Beat your own chest." But uh, you had that trademark baseball swing after sack. Where'd that come from? Were you a baseball player as a kid or something? Well, I did. I played baseball. I was a little jock that played pretty much everything. Uh, what was so surreal is that you know I was really thirsty and want to give the fans something, you know, to, to think about what's going to come, you know, when I do get that ultimate prize of the D-lineman and get a sack. I mean, every player loves to get a sack, and that's just the thing. And, you know, I just wanted to do something that was very, very respectable, you know, and it, and it was catchy. And I just happened to sit up one day and and um, and, and got, got a little mark off of um, a TV host in Johnny Carson, and I just took it from there and brought it to a baseball swing, and one day I had like four sacks against the Raiders. <laughs> Came back and it's like, what are you trying to do out there? Was well, you trying to the media act me? Are you trying to break George uh, break three thousand hits? And I just rode along with him. So yeah, tell George I'm gonna get three thousand sacks and I'm gonna break his record. So it was, just, it was just a timing issue, man. I just thought it was the perfect time. And from there, it went from a, you know the first one was a golf swing, and from there forward, we went to the baseball swing. So it was fun, man. Everybody knew it was coming and. And uh, I had fun with it because it, it, it was just something that stuck. And, you know, it's still today, you know, a couple of guys are still doing it. How do you convince the voters that you should be, speaking of baseball, circling the bases, really? I mean, we asked you earlier about how Mike Shannon convinced the Broncos that they were a better team, your Broncos. How mm-hmm. how would you convince voters that you're worthy of the Hall of Fame? What would you tell me if they were sitting right here in front of you? If that guy is a guy that they have to, you know, they have to plan for to stop him, then that means that you are – that's the guy to be reckoned with. And, and every game in and game out, you know, I, I never took a playoff. I don't think that I've ever seen myself even walk on a football field when a play was going on. I thought I could make every every play. Sorry, I kind of like this little guy, like this guy that's in the league now called J.J. Watt. You know, he, he just felt like he could make every play, and that's just how I was. Right. That's how I, I approached the game. That's why I feel right now when I'm sitting here, there's a voting. Look at this guy hustle. Turn the film on and see the time he the game starting to end and see if he's not the same guy in the fourth quarter that he is in the beginning okay. to the end. And then that makes you, you know, worthy of um, of a guy that I've not been for a long period of time and and it was good for me. That's why I um that's why I can sit back and say, Man, wow, whenever that day come I'm really gonna embrace it. But when it you know, when it do come, I'm well with it up here too. Well, Neil, thanks so much for the time, and good luck with your Hall of Fame candidacy. You know what? Unlike last year, at least you're in the mix. At least you're in the discussion. Hey, man, thanks for you guys. That's why I'm there. Appreciate you. Thanks, thanks Neil. Neil. That was former defensive end Neil Smith. Up next, two-minute drill. This is Talk of Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. You know the sound I like to hear? That's the end of the that's because it means we're going to our two-minute drill. I've got the questions, guys. Hopefully you have the answers, so let's go. It's Halloween season. Yes, season of the witch. So who do you have dressed as a clown? Anyone who trades with Bill Belichick for backup quarterback. <laughs> Ezekiel Elliott's legal team. <laughs> and who's your headless horseman? Browns coach, Hugh Jackson. Sounds like Roger Goodell if Jerry Jones is buying the costumes. 
<laughs> and your great pumpkin would be? Broncos quarterback, Trevor Simeon. <laughs> hey, there's only one choice. Andy Reid. <laughs> <laughs> Trick or treat, Mitch Trubisky. He'd have been a treat had he been drafted after Deshaun Watson. As it stands now, he's a trick. Big time trick. Small time treat. Trick or treat, Miles Garrett. If he ever gets healthy, a treat. Neither trick nor treat. Treatment. Trick or treat, Sam Darnold. I'm Larry of Southern Cal quarterback, so right now I say a trick. 49ers liked him so much they traded for Jimmy, Jimmy Garoppolo, so I'd say trick. Speaking of Darnold, tell me again why the Browns passed on Deshaun Watson. I guess the baseball moneyball guy in Cleveland doesn't think you need a quarterback to win in the NFL. Nice, nice. Because they don't have a quarterback whisperer or anybody who knows what a quarterback is. <laughs> Maybe need a quarterback hollerer there. Why the delay in the Roger Goodell contract extension? He's been siding too often with the players for the owner's taste. I think it's just very simple. The owners want to extend the salary cap to him. Jerry Jones wants, quote, a fair shake, unquote, for Zeke Elliott. What do you want? I think Jerry wants Ezekiel Elliott on the field. He doesn't really care about the shake. <laughs> I want Robert Mueller on the case. He'd be Net- indicting Jerry Jones. <laughs> <laughs> Netflix House of Cards. Yeah, it's going to soon disappear. When did the Arizona cards follow? Follow? They've already disappeared two weeks ago with that blow- shutout loss to the Rams. Gooseman is right. That House of Cards has folded. Colin Kaepernick has a $1 million deal for an upcoming book. What's the title? Take This Job and Shove It. <laughs> Excellent. My life my life as Austin Gamble's body double. <laughs> Juju Smith-Schuster, J.J. Watt, JoJo White, or JoJo Starbuck? JoJo Starbuck, without question. Good one. John John Florence, world's most bo- dominant pipe surfer. <laughs> That's the end of that. <laughs> Well, that's the end of our first hour, but stay where you are. Coming up, it's Raymond Jester, Upton Bell, and our own Dr. Data. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Find the show on Twitter at Talk of Fame Net. Here are your hosts. Rick Gosselin, Ron Borges, and Clark Judd. Well, welcome back to hour number two of the Talk of Fame Network. And in the next 60 minutes, we're going to hear from former Raiders and Baltimore Colts tight end, Raymond Chester. He played for the Colts? He did. He did. <laughs> Who knew? Bert Jones. Whew. He's open, Bert. Throw the ball to him. Yeah, he As, didn't, though, did he? He didn't. Uh, goes to the post. Whew, boy. Um, as well as we're going to hear from former Patriots GM Upton Bell, who just so happens has a new book out. Yes, new book out with Ron Borges called Present at the Creation, My Life in the NFL and the Rise of America's Game. Now, Ron, I think you did a book signing appearance last weekend in suburban Boston. Is that right? Right. How did so, it go? How'd that well, go? It, was, it was apparently it was so cl- crowded you couldn't get in. I kept looking around saying, it's Clark. I need my butt. They told me standing room only. I said, I can't get there. I'm sorry. I, I don't have a ticket. I can't get in. Yeah, how'd it go? Would it go well? Yeah, yeah. It was good, you know, and uh, you know, people so far seem to find it interesting. You know, it's a completely different NFL that we're recalling. You know, mm-hmm. the NFL before all the corporate suits and, and uh, you know, marketing gurus and all that. It was actually about football. Uh, Goose Man, I, I know you've read through the book already. Um, you were telling me there were some great stories in there, and there are. Do you have a favorite or one that you want to share with us? Well, well, not necessarily a particular story, but a chapter. You know, Upton spent a chapter analyzing quarterbacks through an historical lens 
of how the game has changed to favor the offense. He also ranked his top 10 quarterbacks of all time. And if you want to know who was number one, to quote Ron, buy the book. <laughs> exactly right. No freebies. That's why I like that. <laughs> hey, curious, Ron, uh, what, what did people most want to know when they met you or Upton? I mean, what was their most familiar questions other than could either of you guys manage the Red Sox or take them to the World Series? <laughs> well, you know, one of the things that the younger ones all found interesting was, you know, they can't recall a time where the Patriots weren't, you know, at the top of the heap. And, of course, Upton was general manager, took over two and uh, 12 to, or two and 14 team. And, you know, Got them six and eight the first year, and then things fell apart again as they usually did. So they they were asking questions about, you know, how was that? How could that be? The Patriots weren't great. They weren't great. They were barely in the league. And so it's, it's, it was fascinating to them to hear these stories of how he, all the troubles he had just trying to get them righted. Well, we're going to be hearing from Upton Bell later, so you know the answer to that. As well as we're going to hear from our resident physician. That would be Dr. Data. But first, but first we're going to commercial. This is the Dog Fan Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Well, the Black College Football Hall of Fame last week announced its class of 2018, and there are seven inductees. It would be Thomas Hollywood Henderson of Langston University, Raymond Chester of Morgan State, Harold Carmichael of Southern, Leo Lincoln Locomotive Lewis of Lincoln University, Greg Lloyd of Fort Valley State, Everson Walls of Grambling, and Coach Bill Hayes of Winston-Salem State and North Carolina A&T. Now, we've had Everson Walls on this show before. In fact, we've had him on a couple times. That We had him on, I think, a couple weeks ago. And we're going to visit with Raymond Chester shortly. But all of us covered some of these guys and the pros at one time or another. And all of us have stories. So, Goose, start with you. Anything particular about any of these guys you remember, college or pro? Well, let me talk about this group in general. Most of these players were lower-round draft picks because of the caliber of competition. And unfortunately, that's become a stumbling block that they've had to overcome on the way to Canton, particularly in the case of Carmichael and Walls. Great players, deserving players, but the deck is stacked against them more so than, say, a first-round or second-round draft pick from Ohio State or Southern Cal. Well, you know, with, with so many uh, of these kind of great players, you know, uh, you know, if they were coming out of high school today, they'd all be playing for Alabama, you know, and not Ford Valley <laughs> yes, State right, or Lincoln right, University. Right. And, and the thing I remember about so many of these kind of these guys of that era, you know, they came into the league, they were like mysteries. Like, you know, you didn't see them, you didn't know much about them unless you were really uh, deep into the draft. Who are these guys? And it was uh, in the 60s and 70s, that how, that's how it was. And, and I always found it like, uh, you know, thrilling to see some guy boom he just explodes just saying, right. look at that guy <laughs> where's he been he can't block that guy you know uh, chester was certainly like that right and, uh, right right you know and i remember the same thing remember the first time you ever saw the grambling band oh i know you'd heard about <laughs> yeah, it but you'd never right. seen it, it was like that's oh right. my god look at that you know florida a&m kind of same thing yeah you florida know, a&m exactly right. you know right. a, and and there was a mystery to these guys that, right. that i don't think you have today Right. Yeah. How about Warren Wells? Yeah, oh, Texas yeah. Southern. Exactly well, right. I mean, that's well, you, a guy that you know, that guy had been able to stay out of jail. He he might have been in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. <laughs> well, you mentioned Raymond Chester. I mean, I remember you know that ghost of the post game, as I mentioned earlier. He's still open. He's still wide open. And Burt Jones throws the ball a split second too soon. God, right. Unbelievable. Uh, if he had gotten that pass off and completed it, there'd be no ghost to the post. It'd be <laughs> the Colts to the Super Bowl. Anyway, uh, I should mention that the class represents three Super Bowl rings, 18 Pro Bowl selections, and numerous black college football championships. And they will be honored 
the weekend following the Super Bowl on Saturday, February 10th, 2018, at the Black College Football Hall of Fame in Atlanta, Georgia. Yeah, Clark, that pushes the number of players and coaches in the Black College Hall to 77, and 29 of them also have busts in the Pro Football Hall of Mm -hmm. Fame. You know, with players like Jerry Rice, Walter Payton, and Deacon Jones, this hall is almost as hallowed as Canton. Yeah, right. Well, anyway... Congratulations to all seven of these guys. Nice to hear those names again. Um, Now, guys, I I want to fast forward to today and to today's Pro Football Hall of Fame, Goose was talking about, and talk about someone Seattle signed last week, and that would be pass rusher Dwight Freeney. At one time, of course, he was a premier pass rusher, and the numbers reflect that not only was he named to seven Pro Bowls, uh, four All-Pro teams, he's an all-decade choice, former NFL sacks leader. I think that was 2014 16, Goose? Oh, 16. And, um, and he's got 122 and a half career sacks in county, and that ranks 18th on the list, which is the highest among all active players. So uh, now, Goose, the question is, where does this take him? I mean, is Dwight Freeney going to the hall, or is he going to the mall? Well, this committee loves pass rushers. They do. So I like his chances of enshrinement, but the bottom line is he's, he's not done yet. If right. he gets six sacks the rest of this season, he'll pass Hall of Famers Derek Thomas and Ricky Jackson on the list. But that still leaves him behind Leslie O'Neill, whose name never comes up right, in discussion. Right. I, I'd like to see us discuss O'Neill before Freeney ever gets to the table, but, but, but there's no guarantee of that. There is a guarantee that we'll discuss Freeney as soon as he's eligible. Yeah, I think Goose is probably right. He, he'll probably at least get to the hall as far as uh, to be debated. Uh, now I think he's going to have to grab some, some food at the food court in Canton for a few years for over there at the mall before he gets there. But... Uh, <laughs> You know, but like Goose says, and he's so right, you know, this president committee had a love affair with sacks, which is the right. most accidental stat in, in football, right. I think, in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, and, you know, when you're in the top 20 in a stat like that, it's tough to keep you uh, at least out of the debate, uh, for sure. I'm just not sure, because to a degree I haven't done the work uh, on him. And the thing I do remember is uh, seeing him in a lot of big games mm-hmm. uh, against the uh, Patriots and... What was most noticeable was that you didn't see him. Yeah, he disappeared. Um, Well, those are the games. If you're not doing it there, then when were you doing it? Ron, this committee also has a love affair with edge pass rushers. We've we've, uh, inducted nine in the past ten years. But, um, you know, as Goose mentioned, he doesn't have as many sacks as Leslie O'Neill, whom we had to petition to get on the Hall of Fame preliminary ballot. Preliminary ballot. And he's a half sack behind his former teammate, Robert Mathis. So uh, let me ask you guys. Start with you, Ron. You have one gold jacket. Dwight Freeney? Robert Mathis? Or Leslie O'Neill? Oh, not even close. Leslie O'Neill. Uh, I've always felt he got a raw deal. I don't quite know why. You know, he had some bad injuries that, that cost him uh, some playing time and, and would have had a stronger case just because his stats would have been bigger. But, you know, uh, if you saw him in his prime, and I did, uh, then you know there was no more feared pass rusher in, in football. I covered uh, He him. was right. You know, yeah, he's, to me, I think of him as like the Jim Rice of uh, the Baseball Hall who took forever to get in there, even though if, if you knew Jim Rice and, and, and the 10 years he was at his P, he was the most feared power hitter in the American League. No question about it. But, you know, he, he didn't have the numbers that people wanted and eventually got in. And I think O'Neill I would take easily over those guys. Well, we know how this process works. And because of that, I'd say Franey, because he has one more ring and one more sack crown than O'Neill. And I think when he played together with Mathis, the greater offensive concern was Freeney. Hey, Go- Gooseman, quickly. I almost forgot. Simeon Rice is right behind Freeney with 122 career sacks. He can't get a sniff even from the hall quickly. Where do you put him vis-a-vis Freeney? I, th- I think I'd have him above Freeney 
But okay. I'm not sure either one is, is going to get in. Well, speaking of gold jackets, our Rick Austin, a.k.a. Dr. Data, Kenton, class of 2014. He's waiting to tell us why Tennessee, wait, no, the Rams, oh, no, the Jacksonville Jaguars, for crying out loud, could wind up in the Super Bowl. Yeah, honest. Now this I got to hear, Goose. Well, everybody can use a week off, right? Sometimes you just need a break. Well, in the NFL, the league office decides when its teams can take that break. It annually schedules bye weeks, which effectively turn a 16-game schedule into a 17-week season. Television loves the longer season, and the players appreciate that week off to heal up from the aches and pains and the mental grind. I've always been of the belief that the later the bye, the greater the benefit. If I ran a team, I'd want my bye in early November every season, right around the midway point of the schedule. You could take a deep breath, assess where you are in the standings, and figure out what needs to be done to extend your season into January. Since 2000, there have been 17 Super Bowl champions. New England has won a Lombardi Trophy at both ends of the bye spectrum. The Patriots won in 2001 when they received their bye on the 17th and final weekend of the season. In 2004, the Patriots won when they received their bye on the third weekend of the season. By the way, those mark the earliest and latest byes ever for a Super Bowl champion. The Patriots also won Lombardi trophies following byes in the 10th, 10th, and 9th weeks of seasons. And if you average out the bye weeks of the 17 Super Bowl champions, the weekend a contender would most want off is the 8th week. So keep an eye on these three Super Bowl long shots. Jacksonville Jaguars, the Los Angeles Rams, and the Tennessee Titans all have their buys last weekend during the eighth week of the season. All sit in first place. The Jaguars and Titans share the top spot in the AFC South, and the Rams share with the Seattle Seahawks in the NFC West. All resume play this week, rested mentally and physically for the stretch run. Why not? Who saw the Patriots coming in 2001 or the Giants in 2007? Sometimes week off does everybody good. Well, that may be true, true uh, Goose Man, but unfortunately for those slappies, the 6-2 and two Patriots have this weekend off and then 14 <laughs> days to prepare for your Dallas Cowboys. So Jags, Titans, or Pats, your pick. Oh, as I recall, Clark was all over the Rams in 2001. And, Ron, I you was. were all over those unbeaten Patriots in 2007. <laughs> like Sometimes a- <laughs> you have to look beyond the obvious to discover reality. <laughs> hey, Hey, Gooseman, quick question for you. What's the message then for Dallas, your Cowboys? Their bar was in the sixth week. What's the message for Cowboys fans? Uh, you, you want to buy during one of the six weeks, Ezekiel Elliott is going to be sitting. <laughs> that ain't going to happen. Sounds like your message to that is buy, buy. Buy. Wow. Buy. Well, Ron, you taking yeah. Jacksonville, the Rams, or Tennessee to Minnesota? <laughs> yeah, me neither. Uh, yeah, no, nah, I don't think so. No, nah, I don't think so. Tell you what, we will be taking, though, a break. When we return, we'll sit down with Ron's buddy and subject of his latest book, that'd be former New England GM, Upton Bell. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Upton Bell first joined the Baltimore Colts as a training camp attendant in 1960 and worked his way up to personnel director, building teams that twice reached the Super Bowl before. At the age of 33, becoming the youngest GM in pro football when he was hired by the then Boston Patriots. But that's not where his life in pro football began. Uh-uh, no siree. Upton had been in pro football since the day he was born. Son of Hall of Fame Commissioner Burt Bell, he became the Forrest Gump. Yes, the Forrest Gump, the original Forrest Gump of football. Something with big was happening. Well, he was witness to it and often part 
of it. Now he's with us to talk about his new book, Present at the Creation, My Life in the NFL and the Rise of America's Game, which was released this week. Upton, thanks so much for joining us and welcome back. Great to be here, gentlemen. And let me just say quickly, uh, in, in making a decision to do this book, I was looking for somebody that knew the past well enough and yet was still in the future, in the present, in the future. And that's why I chose Ron Borges. He's the only person I know, uh, minus you two, of course, that uh, could write this story. And uh, I'm really happy with, with what happened here, because if somebody doesn't have any idea of the past, how the hell can he talk about the future? So go ahead. Ron, that's your <laughs> Hall of Fame introduction right yeah, there. Yeah, there, you go. there you go. We won't talk about all the arguing between us. <laughs> you know what? Um, October 11th, 1959, of course, was an important moment in, in football history uh, and for you and your father, who was then the NFL commissioner. You were both at Franklin Field that day for what became a real turning point for, for the league and, and, and yourself and your family. Uh, if you could tell our listeners uh, what happened that day. Well, again, to try and condense it, actually, uh, I, I got up early in the morning and was going down to the game uh, between, actually, the Eagles and the Steelers. And on the field where Burt Bell was captain of Penn through the first forward pass in Rose Bowl history. But typical Upton, I was great. Life was great. I had a lot of hangers on. Stopped in to see my father to make sure I had enough tickets. And, and the last time I saw him walking out the door was my babysitter, Bull Lipsky, back from the 30s when I was a kid. And uh, he would get an extra $5 to babysit myself or my brother. He was broke. And he said to my father, you know, I'm, I'm having a hard time. And the last act I saw is my father pull out uh, his uh, wallet, actually, his money clip. And, and he gave him $100 or $200, everything he had in it, and said, see me tomorrow. I'll take care of it. Game starts. Now we're in the fourth quarter. Two minutes left in the game. Norm Van Brocklin, the quarterback of the Eagles Hall of Famer. Bobby Lane, Hall of Famer of the Steelers. The Eagles are driving for the winning touchdown. And as Tommy McDonald catches the ball to cross the goal line, a friend of mine said, there's somebody in a brown suit down over on the other side near the end zone. I looked through the binoculars, and I would know that suit. I said, that's my father. I jumped out of the stands, ran onto the field, ran to the other side, and by the time I got to him, it was just about too late. They had run to the Steelers bench, tried to save him with oxygen, and somebody yells out, Jesus Christ, that's typical of the Steelers. They can't do anything right. And actually, we got in an ambulance, went up to the hospital, and one of the things that I told Ron that day was, and we have it in the book, is Art Rooney almost died that day, too, because his partner was so upset he started, when he heard it, to run up, of the street and was almost hit and killed by a trolley to get to the hospital. So on that day, Bert Bell died. Not easy to accept. But even as, as important as that was, later in the week, we got a call. We None of us in the family ever knew this. He had made a deal to secretly retire as commissioner at the end of the year, and he had rebought his old team, the Philadelphia Eagles, for $930,000. The bank called and said, I'm sorry. There's nobody here that can do it. You kids can't do it. So my father dies, we lose the team, and my life starts the history of Gump. <laughs> Upton, I read the book. I love the book. And frankly, if you'd written the whole thing on Johnny Unitas, I would have found it <laughs> riveting anyway. 
So what what did Unitas mean to the Colts? Uh, what what did he mean to the city of Baltimore, to the Colts, and pro football in the 1960s? He's one of the great characters. He's a Shakespearean character. Uh, he would never look at it that way. The city loved him. Everybody loved him. But as Rand points out in, in the book, is the reason that I have respect for him, my early years I worked on the sideline during the game, and that's when people really got hit. The blood flowed, and, and Brady today, even with his diet, would, would be uh, in a prone position by the age of 32. I never saw you like I never saw Unitas flinch. I never saw him ever show any terror. He took one of the worst beatings of any quarterback in history and yet played some of the greatest games remembered in history. There, there, there was a, an elegance about him. He would never look at it that way. But the way he carried him, in fact, I was telling Ron, and we have that in the book, I was not there, but the players talk about the time he was in the L.A. airport and we and we had just finished playing there on our way to San Francisco, and the, with the great name at that time, before cell phones and everything else, Clark Gable was in the airport, and Gable walks over to say to all our players, "I want to meet Unitas. That's the one person I wanted to meet." He was incredible in every way, and I and I'm not somebody who's trying to say the past was better than today, but I've never seen a person with a greater killer instinct that came from absolutely nothing. He was a Baltimore blue-collar guy in a town that will never, there'll never be a town like Baltimore again that was such in love with somebody that he returned it all, but he was a very, very kind of shy person. And, and as Ron and I talk, look at that sudden death game. United hands the ball off. Lenny Moore makes the block. Michi goes in the end zone. And one of the great endings of all time, that is turns like this mystical character and walks off the field like, boys, it's done. See you later. Yeah, right. <laughs> you, you can never argue with a guy named Clark. You know, he knew what he was after. <laughs> hey, we're with former GM Upton Bell on the Talk of Fame Network, and you can find us on the web at talkoffamenetwork.com or on Twitter at, at Talk of Fame Net. And Upton, in the book, you call Super Bowl three where the Colts lost to the Jets and ruined my senior year of high school, quote, <laughs> like original sin, unquote. Why? <laughs> Well, because, because a couple of things. One, I saw the three major games in history that changed the NFL. The 48 game in the snow where my father helped people uh, actually pull the tarp off the field to play the game. First national televised game. 1958 game that changed the history of pro football and sold the game. 1968 really made the merger work because everybody thought, including Roselle, it was ridiculous uh, that the AFL was, was mightily inferior. That game, the Namus promise, the comeback of, of Unitas in the, in the last quarter, all the elements, Joe Kennedy showing up, Ted Kennedy showing up, all the stars showing up, getting ready for the party at Rosenblum's, and one of the greatest upsets in history is pulled off by the little general that also pulled up the other great upset, and that was in 1958. It was a game that changed everything. And I will say this. People have called me about this. They've never even studied it and said the blow-by-blow blow description in there, how each play happened, why it happened, uh, was just an amazing. Somebody said to me, I'd just like to do a movie of that game. So it, it did change everything. And, and ironically, as I was telling Ron, after that game, I mean, we all had a great life. I was gone. 
Shula was gone. Chuck Dole was gone. George Young was eventually gone. Everybody there that either went on to be a general manager was gone because Carol Rosenblum was one person who never forgave. Yeah, right. You know what, Upton? Jimmy Orr is still open in the end zone. <laughs> you're you're remember, damn right. He's open, he's open to a lot of other things, too. <laughs> <laughs> I, me- I remember you, you, you mentioning in the book, Upton, uh, the look on Rosenblum's face after that game with his fellow and the look of the other fellow NFL owners um, and you sort of realizing what that was going to mean. What was that moment like for you as a young well, it, 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 it was something because I was up in the press box with the coaches and uh, the game's over and I'm walking down and ironically I'm walking down with Dan Rooney and you could see, I mean, uh, the, the looks would kill from the other NFL owners who were embarrassed and now we're going to blame Rosenblum. Uh, for the loss to those losers, as they would, would, would tell you, not publicly. And I'm walking down with Dan Rooney and, and to try and break the tension, because you could tell everybody was upset. I said, by the way, I know it's not the right time, but if you're looking for a coach, Chuck Knowles, the person you need to talk to. I get down, get into the locker room, and Rosenblum has made a speech, essentially, as Ron captured the speech, that no owner would ever say after a loss, even even a bitter loss like that. He said, gentlemen, I am not used to losing. I am embarrassed. And I want you to know, basically, I will never accept that again. In the meantime, I'm in, in the shower room talking to Alex Hawkins about the game, and, and he is you know, making comments about how ridiculous we look and all these other things. Mike Curtis, who I had drafted, and of course infamous for punching the fan running on the field, <laughs> heard this conversation and thought we were kidding about it. And he essentially throw, uh, threatened to kill Hawkins. <laughs> Jesus. When you were scouting, when you're looking for a quarterback, what's the most essential thing? No question. Leadership, the ability to react immediately. And I will say this, the reason that I think Unitas was the greatest of all time, called his own plays, made the adjustment at the line of scrimmage, great leadership ability, very quick feet. My problem with today's quarterback, a coach calls the play. Please, I'm not interested in Josh McDaniel calling the play and, and executing. I'm interested in Brady. That's it, gentlemen. Upton, I'm interested in Brady, too. Hey, thanks for the time. And on behalf of you and Ron, let me say this. Buy present at the creation, please, on Amazon at Barnes & Noble or anywhere books are sold. Ron needs the money. (laughs) So do I. (laughs) Thanks, Upton. Thanks, Upton. Thanks, Upton. Thank you, guys. That was Upton Bell. Up next is Raymond Chester from Ron's favorite team. I thought New England was your favorite team, Ron. Anyway, this (laughs) is the Talk of Fame Network. listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Former tight end Raymond Chester was named to the Black College Football Hall of Fame's class of 2018, and I can't think of a more deserving inductee. Raymond, as Ron knows, because he covered him with the Open Tribune, and as I know, because I worship the Baltimore Colts, was one of the greatest tight ends anywhere, starring Morgan State's three undefeated teams in college and a four-time Pro Bowler who was... NFL Rookie of the Year, as well as a Super Bowl champion. And who, yes, who, after coming out of retirement in 1983, was the USFL's Man of the Year. Raymond, first of all, congratulations on reaching the Black College Football Hall of Fame. And second, thanks for joining us. 
Well, first, thank you very much uh, for the compliment, and uh, I'm really honored and, and humbled, actually, to uh, to take a spot in the Black uh, College Hall of Fame. Um, uh, and, you know, I, I in the era I came out, there were so many great players that were coming out of the historical black colleges. And, and uh, man, oh, man, I think when I came out, uh, I think the number one school in the country for uh, a number of athletes in the pros, football players, uh, I want to say it was Gramlin yeah. and, and it was Gramlin, SC, uh, Notre Dame, uh, and then maybe Morgan. Uh, it was really, you know, we had great representation in those days. So I'm honored, you know, so many great players. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because I wanted to ask you, um, getting named to the Black College Football Hall of Fame, where does that rank among your career football accomplishments? Uh, it's, 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 it's major because, because of what I just said, because there's so many. I could just go on and on and on, you know, naming great players, not just on the Morgan squad. I think, when, I think 11 guys, uh, my year I came out of college, I think 11 guys went to the pros off of our teams. Wow. And uh, there were so many great players. Obviously, everybody knows about you know the great Gramlin teams, but Southern and Texas Southern and 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 uh, University of Maryland Eastern Shore and and uh, just so many schools and so many you know so many great athletes coming out and you know and uh, you know they predominantly were in the uh, AFL initially, but then they just you know they just. Uh, found their way throughout the whole league and and managed to uh, do great things. Raymond, why did you go to Morgan State? Uh, it's a long story. It's a funny story. Actually, uh, I in high school, I was, a, I was a heavyweight wrestler. And on a pretty good wrestling team, wrestling was pretty big in, in, uh, uh, in Maryland. Uh, I was also on a track team. I you know, did, you know, the normal weight stuff, you know, discus and shot and whatever. And I played, uh, I played line. I played uh, offensive tackle and defensive uh, tackle in in high school. And so the, the scouts started coming around. And I actually was offered a scholarship to Notre Dame, uh, a scholarship to University of Maryland, and a scholarship to Penn State. And I actually visited those schools. I visited Penn State and and, uh, and uh, I visited University of Maryland and and when I so when I when I got to Penn State uh, oh his oh, let me go back go back so my last year in high school we put a special play in it was an overshift and it was a tackle eligible play and I we ran that play you know sparingly but every time we ran it I had pretty good success you know as a tackle catching the ball and running with it and whatever. So I kind of got a taste of that, you know, that that glory of playing, you know, handling the ball. And I thought that that was kind of what I wanted to do, wanted a chance to play tight end. So uh, I went to went to Penn State, and I was really thinking about going to Penn State. And they had a guy up there playing tight end that they were pretty satisfied with, a guy named Ted Kowalik. <laughs> and, and so – uh, the coach came over to me. He said, "Look, he says uh, we really want we want to bring you in, but we want you to play defensive end for us." And that kind of bursted my bubble. And so I 
Um, I knew folks that had gone, you know, gone to Morgan. I was really familiar with Morgan, but I was kind of excited about going out of town at first initially. So then, I, you know, I, uh, Coach Banks and a few other coaches uh, had scouted me. Actually, my my uh, my wrestling coach in high school was the son-in-law of the great Eddie Hurt, the, the track coach at Morgan then and the yeah. athletic director. And so it, the, the, real, the reality of it was there was no way that I was going to I was going to get out of Morgan, get, get, get out of going to Morgan because uh, it was just so many people trying to push me there. And, and then when Coach Banks offered me the chance to play tight end, uh, I think I was sold on that. Interesting. Wow, that's fast. You know, that's probably a decision that a kid in your position today wouldn't, you know, if he was here today, wouldn't make. You know, he's like, oh, Notre Dame or Penn State TV, you know, all sort of that. It's a different, different time. Clearly. Yeah, well, you know, I have, we had some experience at Morgan. Morgan was, you know, we went to some of the games and, uh, um, you know, and they were real, the school was really close, not far from Douglas High, where I graduated. Mm-hmm. And uh, and Morgan had great teams. I mean, they had, I mean, they were rocking in those days with, you know, guys like, um, you know, like George Knock and, and Willie Lanier and, sure. um, you know, Clarence Scott. Yeah, they had great players. So uh, I went to Morgan, and I have never regretted it. Not one iota. I had a great education. Uh, met, you know, many lifelong, you know, quality friends, um, and uh, and had a great football career there. Well, you went from there, of course, to the Raiders, where you got to meet me, and I'm sure that was probably one of the highlights <laughs> of your life. Uh, <laughs> But I'm just wondering, what you know? I mean, you go from from uh, an historically black college to to Oakland, the Raiders, Al Davis, all of that. Uh, how much of an adjustment or a shock to your system was it to go from the East Coast and everything you knew there to uh, to what the Raiders were, uh, both in football? Ron, I didn't even know where the heck Oakland was. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even, you know. I mean, we were. I was an AFC fan, but you know. Uh, it certainly wasn't. I wasn't a Raider fan because I didn't know where the hell Oakland was. <laughs> As a matter of fact, when I first got off the plane, the first time I landed in Oakland, I thought I was on the moon somewhere. <laughs> like, you yeah. know, it was Everett, and it was hot, you know it was in the summertime, and man, it was dry and hilly. And I'm like, where the heck am I? But um, actually, that my experience upon arriving in Oakland was good. I I, I remember, uh, Ron, you probably remember this. I remember. Uh, some of the headlines in the paper when I got there, and they were they were talking about you know Raiders uh, make Raymond Chester their number one draft choice, and one of the articles like was who the heck is Raymond Chester? Right, <laughs> you know, where they, you know, from where and where did he play in college? So, right, that's true. And I was really shocked, um, you know, to see so many you know black players on one team, and then. And then I got in the locker room in Oakland. In Oakland, we had probably 20 or more uh, black players. Yep. Um, and so and they made me feel right at home. I mean, they took me right under their wing and um, made me feel uh, right at home. Now, having said that, you know, some of my best friends on the team, my best friend on the team wound up being Daryl LaMonica. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and so guys like LaMonica and, and – uh, uh, George Blanda and uh, you know they, I mean there was there was just a really cool spirit on the team and I never sensed that there was any problem with race or anything like that and Al Davis uh, 
uh, kind of, uh, you know, made that known to everybody. We were, we were, we were a team, and you could play uh, Raider-style football, and then you were welcome. Yeah, well, you know, I remember uh, years later, you know, when he gave Art Shell his, uh, you know, his, his shot at coach, and Art was a good, was and still is a good friend of mine, uh, and uh, he told me how Al called him in, and, and he said, you know, this is going to be a big thing. Historically, it's going to be a big, you know, typical Al, this is going to be a big thing, uh-huh. Uh-huh. a big thing, uh, you know, his story. He said, but don't understand this, you didn't get this job because you're black, you got this job because you're silver and black. <laughs> and, and that was Al, you know. I mean, you knew that he meant it. You knew it was the truth, you know. I know, hey, I know, Ron. You know, we we could uh, when we got more time, we'll share some random stories. But, <laughs> yeah. but, but but for me, for me, that that was so comforting because you know I'm a small college, and they, and essentially, even though Baltimore is a you know a major city, it's a small college, small town guy because. At that time, when I grew up in Baltimore, the neighborhoods were like individual little barrows, you know, little towns. So you didn't go. I didn't go out of my neighborhood, you know, except in my dad's car, you know. So, so really, I really was a small town kid, you know, with not a whole lot of experience. Uh, I think my family we went to the World's Fair one, drove to the World's Fair one time in my dad's car when it was up in New York, and that was about it, as far as I've ever been. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, coming to a team, uh, and then they had so many uh, uh, guys from small colleges. I mean, Willie Brown and, 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 and Gene Upshaw, right. uh, you know, Eddie Hayes, I mean, Art, uh, Gerald Irons, yeah. um, uh, Nehemiah Wilson. We, had a, we just had a lot of, Eldridge Dickey, uh, we had a lot of guys on that team that were, uh, you know, from from small colleges all over the south and all over the uh, the northeast. Raymond, we've got a couple minutes left, and, and we're speaking with former tight end Raymond Chester, who's one of seven inductees to the Black College Hall of Fame on the Talk of Fame Network. And you can find us on the web at talkoffamenetwork.com or on Twitter at Talk of Fame Net. And, Raymond, um, before we go farther, and as I said, we've got a couple minutes left, I want to ask you a direct question. You're in the Black College Football Hall of Fame. But you're not in the mm-hmm. Pro Football Hall of Fame. And, and I know you wonder why, and so do we. If you were to stand in front of the 48 voters today, what would you tell them? What would you say to them to try to convince them to get, get you in the Pro Football Hall of Fame? Well, you know, who I am is, you know, would not allow me to sit up and, and you know, and petition for myself. I, you know, so I, I, would, I would just say to them this. I would say um, we really ought to do something about all the great players who are who have been recognized as great players and continue to be candidates, but they continue to be pushed further and further back by, you know, a lot of the current players that are, that are coming out and, and uh, specifically like receivers and, 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 and things like that. I mean, the numbers are astronomical that, you know, guys catching hundred balls, hundred balls a year. Well, I could never compare, compare with that. If you just wanted to talk about how many balls I caught a year, but if you, if you, if you had a way to measure the total value of a player to his team and whatever, and to every team that he played on, then I think you should do that. And something should be done as far as I'm concerned about guys that are, you know, now get guys in the 60s, 70s years old, you know, and, and yeah. just like last year, I went to, to Ken's induction, Staples induction. Yeah. And it was sad that um, we need to take a hard look at, you know, um, 
pushing guys further and further back. Because those guys, obviously, I mean, if they're good enough to be in the Hall of Fame with their numbers and their contributions and their character in their era, then they should be in first. Hey, Raymond, we got to run. Um, but thanks so much for the time, and congratulations again on your election to the Black College Football Hall of Fame. Thank you. I'm so honored and privileged, and uh, thank you guys for taking the time to talk with me. And, Ron, hey, man, uh, if you come out this way, man, I'm easy to find. Catch up with me. You We'll tee off. I know you're a better golfer than me, but we'll have some laughs. You may regret those words, Raymond. <laughs> oh, man. Hey, hey, I hear you, man. You know what? Hey, the other thing I wanted to say, man, is I had all that experience, you know, in the USFL, and, and I think uh, the other thing that needs to be seriously considered is a person's character and their contribution, right. uh, you know, after football and what they do with their life after. Thank you, guys. You got it. Thanks, Thanks for tight end Raymond Chester. Up next, two minute drill. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Hey, I see our producer Robert Harris is waving his hand, so that can mean only one thing. That's the end of the match. Yep, it's the return of the two minute drill. I've got more questions for you guys, so let's get rolling. Who wins first, Cleveland or San Francisco? San Francisco. John Lynch and Cal Shannon have a plan. The Browns don't. San Francisco already won. They're not Cleveland. England gives us the Beatles, Downton Abbey and Jacqueline Bissett. So why do we give it rotten football? It's payback for Freddie and the Dreamers. <laughs> Freddie and the Dreamers. Wow. Because they taxed our tea, man. <laughs> You're doing the Freddie goose? <laughs> Freddie. Wow. <laughs> Thank you for your services. A, a movie about Americans returning from war. B, Wimbledon's invitation to John Isner. Or C, the next thing Mike Tomlin says to Martavius Bryant. D, what Bill Belichick told Jimmy Garoppolo this Ooh. week. E, what Jerry Jones would like to say to Roger Goodell. <laughs> <laughs> Who plays next, Teddy Bridgewater or Andrew Luck? Andrew Luck, although we may not see either one until 2018. Well, I still think it's Bridgewater because Andrew was out of luck. That shoulder, not good. You're the New York Giants. What do you do with Eli Manning? Get him some blockers, runners, health receivers. Peyton Manning would struggle with this cast. Like Jerry Jones, you say, thank you for your service. <laughs> C.J. Beathard, Bobby Beathard, or Pete Beathard? The greatest NASCAR driver of all, Ricky Bobby. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, Bobby Beathard, because he's going to be in the Hall of Fame, we think. Uh, we think. If J.J. Watt is the NFL's man of the year, guys, what is Bob McNair? The man who took all the heat off Jerry Jones. A member of Donald Trump's diplomacy team. Jadavion Clowney says he wasn't taking a shot at Bob McNair by dressing as an inmate for a Halloween party. Ah, trick or treat? Trick. Never rub it in the face of the guy who signs your check. Exactly right. Treat today. Big trick coming. If Robert Mueller were to launch an NFL investigation, where would he look first? Los Angeles. How did the Rams turn it around so quickly? On Jerry Jones's bus. There's got to be something there. What should be the first inductee for the Hall of Fame of Halloween candy? Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. He's exactly right. And you know why, guys? Because you can tell your wife, peanut butter is a protein source. <laughs> well, we'd like to thank Raymond Chester, Neil Smith, Upton Bell, and Jim Fossil for joining us. Robert Harris Jr. for producing us and you for listening to us. If you'd like to hear this or any podcast, just go to our website. That would be talkoffamenetwork.com. Or dial us up on iTunes or your podcast app. Otherwise, listen to this station at this time next week. We'll be here. We hope you will be, too.